Father, here we are. Give us open ears. I believe that your Holy Spirit is wanting to communicate to our hearts. Please don't let anything get in the way of that. Not my words, not any of the thoughts that are going on from this week. Father, may you clear the table so that we can hear you, that we can get tools in our life to be able to love you more deeply and live for you more completely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As he walked into the library, he was perusing through the books. I don't know if any of you like to see what books are in a library, or some of you may not have been in a library for a very long time. But as he looked through the books, he found this one book that was really, really old. And he began to dust it off, and he, he looked at it, and as he looked through it, he was astonished. He didn't even know that this book existed. As he looked through it, he realized that there was something more. He knew that there was the Psalter, the Psalms. He'd heard the Gospels, and he'd even read some for himself. He was learned, but he had no idea that there was a Bible. His name was Martin Luther. This is an old Latin text here, maybe one like he saw, but his name was Martin Luther, and he was studying at the University of Wittenberg. And this is what he said, at least as recorded by uh, one historian. He said, oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. Oh, that, that God would allow me to have this book. I want to have that kind of, of passion for this book. You know, this book has multiplied. We've got access to it. I can pull up on my cell phone uh, hundreds of different versions and languages in just a second, and I can see all of them, read all of them. I can have it read to me. But do I have that heart? Oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. I want to invite you to go back to Daniel chapter 7 with me. Or Actually, we're in Daniel chapter 8 now. We're going to review one, one verse in, in Daniel chapter 7, but we're moving on to Daniel chapter 8. And here we find another vision or dream that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 1. And you'll notice again a similar context to what we were reading last week. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Do you remember this guy? <laughs> we talked about him last week. He's the guy that didn't invite... Daniel to the party. So we have the idea that during his co-regency with his dad, Nabonidus, that, that this guy put Daniel out. And when he comes to interpret his dream, he calls him, oh, you're one of those captives of Israel, aren't you? He has no respect for this guy that has served Babylon for decades in top leadership. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, God again comes to, to Daniel. A vision appeared to me. He's not just appearing to Nebuchadnezzar now. To me, Daniel, after that one that appeared to me the first time. Now, just to give you context, we are now back in the Hebrew section of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 through 7 are in Aramaic. Daniel chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and Daniel chapter 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. Some people assume that that's because this is for the Jewish audience. Chapter 2 through 7 are more designed for a broader audience. That might be one reason we're not entirely sure. He doesn't tell us why. But then he sees this vision. And, and remember, we're talking about a repeat and large as we go through Daniel. We found four kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2. We found those same four kingdoms looking in Daniel chapter 7. But now we're going to find astoundingly that he's going to name these kingdoms that are coming hundreds of years in advance. So first, he sees this ram. And this ram, there's something funny about it. It has two horns, and one of the horns is raised up and is bigger than the other. And we learn from uh, historians that actually the Medes were stronger at first, but under Cyrus, the Persians began to gain ascendancy. So this gives us the idea uh, of what this ram represents, but we don't just have to guess because in chapter 8, verse 20, the angel actually reveals to Daniel and says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And here it gives us the idea that he, he becomes great and he's able to conquer. And again, we're seeing this worldly power that is crushing everybody around him. But it doesn't last. What happens? 
Suddenly there's a male goat that comes racing across and it's got this horn coming out of the front of it and it crushes this ram. It comes out of nowhere and it crushes this ram. And this we're told later in verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. And we can just read past that and be like, okay, the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Okay, that's, that's Alexander the Great. But this is astonishing to have this in this book. Because as we read this, people scoffed at the Bible because it talked about Belshazzar. They said Belshazzar wasn't king. Until we realized through going through the Nabonidus tablets that, oh, he did give co-regency to his son. And so we realized that actually the person who wrote this had to have written this back when he claims to have written it because he actually was on the inside of Babylon. He knew about Belshazzar. So he wrote this uh, 500 plus years before Christ. An incredible thing. Because Greece and Alexander the Great doesn't come on the scenes until uh, the 4th century before Christ. It was about, what was it, three, I guess, three, I'm not, mid, mid third, 300s that he, was, he came on the scene. This is, confirms to you, you can trust this book. You can trust what's in here. God knows the future. But it's not just there to entertain us or to give us confidence that, yeah, we know things better than somebody else. It's for our practical lives today. It tells us about the first king, uh, Alexander the Great. And it tells us that as this horn came up, it was broken right when it was strong. And you remember, he goes and he conquers the known world. He goes all the way into India. He's actually stopped in India. My friend Anil Kanda is really proud of that. And then he comes back to <laughs> he comes back to Babylon and then he dies what some people believe was after a drunken party from a fever. This guy who was on top of the world was living for himself and he imploded. This is the story we find again and again and again in the Bible. Verse 8, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds. Okay, so now we're going hundreds of years in advance. Daniel says, okay, it's not going to be one more ruler after him. Instead, there's going to be four generals who are given control. And, and then it becomes four, four kingdoms after Alexander the Great. The book Education, page 177, says it this way. The nations rejected God's principles and in this rejection wrought their own ruin. You see, when Alexander the Great overtook Darius, what he did to stir up his army was say, you remember how the Persians, they came in and they, they invaded our country and he riled his people up. And you, you read about the goat. He's got great rage as he comes out after the ram. Persia had brought that on themselves. But Alexander the Great brought it on himself that he came to an end. Kingdom after kingdom has neglected the principles of God and in that rejection have brought about their own ruin. Uh, verse 9 says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. So that's out of one of the four winds. That's the antecedent to that, not one of the four horns. Out of the four winds, so you have another kingdom coming up, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. We see this happening with Rome. As Rome comes in, again, this is a repeat and enlarge. As Rome comes in, they conquer in these exact directions, towards Egypt, towards the east, towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now we could guess from other prophecies, what does this mean? Thankfully, we would probably get it wrong. So the angel tells us a little bit later. It says, a king shall arise, talking about this little horn power, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. The word there is basically like riddles. He's using... Uh, making things complicated and making things difficult, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own what? Not by his own power. Do you remember what the church began to do we learned last week? What did the church do to get power? Anybody remember? Anybody was here? Where did it get its power from? From the state. 
It began to be the one that was appointing kings, and it began to to rule based upon the strong arm of the state. And we learned how when the church grasps for power from the state, it's lost the power of self-sacrificing love. Because that's what it's all about. That's how God reigns and rules, and that is the only eternally sustainable principle. Self-sacrificing love. It's what God's law is all about. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. Now notice this. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. This gives us the idea of what the host is and what the stars are. They are the mighty and also the holy people. This is making war against God's saints was the wording that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. This this power that is, is going up is now choosing to make this a religious battle. What are the two things that you don't talk about with your family over the dinner table? <laughs> religion and politics. Because there's something about religion that holds power over people. And this power is wanting to control people. And so it does it in the most maniacal way by choosing to use religion to control people. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And we'll learn this in Daniel. The prince of the host is Jesus the prince of the host is the pre-incarnate Christ, maybe we should say. He even exalts himself as high as Jesus, and by him the daily, and sacrifices is supplied here. It's not in there. New King James and other versions failed there. Were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. We'll go into more detail on that in the coming week. Because of transgression. Notice that? Why is it? Because of transgression, it's because of their neglect of the principles of God, the law of God, because of the neglect of this. This is why this power was able to succeed. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily. And he cast truth to the ground. And he did all this and prospered. He cast truth to the ground. You know, we're living in what some people, what do they call it, the post-truth age? This is a time period where truth is cast to the ground. And we learn from Daniel chapter 7 that this time period extends for a time, times, and time, half a time, which is 1,260 years from 538 to 1798. So what is truth? What is truth all about? We looked at John 17, verse 17, at the beginning of our service. Sanctify them or set them apart by your truth. Your, what is truth? Your word. God says, the the word that I speak, that is truth. That's where we can know that we're on safe ground. You know, there's times where people are debating this or that, and I'll get into it myself, or maybe I'm the one that starts it. But I'm coming to the conclusion that that I need to not have any confidence that I'm going to be right in my discussion with somebody unless I've got the Word of God behind me. That's where I know that I can base reality. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Now, notice what begins to happen with our Christianity. This, This Christianity that was birthed to spread the good news about Jesus throughout the world. Notice what this church began to do to the very truth that Jesus said, I want my church to be set apart. I want them to be sanctified by this truth. We're just going to look at a few examples here. Pope Gregory the, the seventh, January 2, in 1080, he's actually writing in a letter. He says, not without reason has it pleased Almighty God that Holy Scripture should be a secret in certain places, lost if it were plainly apparent to all men. It would, it would be dangerous for everybody to have access to this, is basically what he's saying. Perchance, it would be little esteemed. People might not really respect the word of God if they had access to it. And be subject to disrespect, or it might be falsely understood by those of mediocre learning and lead to error. <laughs> he's using sinister schemes. He's using riddles. He's... In a way, this is coming across with good intentions. And I don't judge Gregory VII. I don't know why he was doing this. I realized that there were heresies creeping in, that there was ways of using the Bible. There were translations of the Bible. And the church is concerned about this. And they say, we've got to, to, to hang on to our tradition. We've got to hang on to the Bible and make sure that, that nobody brings any errors into it. And so we're going to hang on to this really tightly. Peter Waldo, in, in the uh, 
12th, what is that? 12th, uh, I get my centuries confused. 1170 to 1180, he commissioned the very first translation of the Bible in a modern tongue outside of Latin. It was the Romance language. Uh, he, he commissioned the Bible to be translated. And you might know the Waldensians. They, they believe that he was the leader of the Waldensians. Waldensians may have predated him. But he got the Bible translated. And you notice this is the 1100s, that it's finally getting translated into a language that people can understand. But watch this. The degree, uh, decree of the Council of Toulouse in 1229 said this, We prohibit also that the laity shall be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. So what, what the Waldensians are doing? We've got to stop this. Stop translating the Bible. Stop making it accessible to people. Stop putting it in their language so they can understand it. The laity shouldn't have access to this. Laity meaning people that aren't past, uh, well, priests, I guess at the time, that, that aren't a part of the, the religious leadership. Ruling of the Council of Tarragon, 1234. It says, no one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments in the Romance language. You notice they're targeting that language that Peter Waldo was having the Bible translated into. No one can possess the Bible in that language. If anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days after promulgation of this decree that they may be burned. They're zealous to make sure that they they preserve what they deem as truth. And I can stand back and I can look at this and I can say, man, that's crazy. That's so far off. But I have to ask myself in my own life, am I hanging on to traditions more than I am onto what the actual word of God is all about? John Wycliffe becomes the morning star of the Reformation. He gets the Bible translated into English. He said this, Translating the Bible he's talking about into English will helpeth, notice that they talk different back then, helpeth Christian men to study the gospel. But he's using a, a new language. He's using English. This is, this is common language. Helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue in which they know best Christ's sentence. A language that, that communicates the gospel to them in the words that they understand and use in their daily language. They're going to understand this best. Well, Steps to Christ, a beautiful book that I encourage you to read, says it very similar. It says, The Bible was not written for the scholar alone. On the contrary, it was designed for the common people. It's for everybody to have access. Get it to as many people as possible in a way they can understand and grasp it. The great truths necessary for salvation are made as clear as noonday, and none will mistake and lose their way except those who follow their own judgment instead of the plainly revealed will of God. If we'll just base our lives based upon the Bible, we can trust that God is going to lead us through. We won't lose our way. We won't become a part of those principles that will implode in the end. So what is the best translation of the Bible? You know, I was sitting in the seminary, in a seminary class, and my Greek professor was talking to us about what translation of the Bible would be most helpful. And she said, what you need to do is you need to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. That is the best possible access that you can have to God's Word, because that's what it was written in. Thankfully, she didn't stop there, because that's a lot of work. Uh, Maybe you haven't tried Greek or Hebrew yourself. I found it to be a lot of work. But she went on to say, if you cannot do that, the best possible thing you can do is if you need to study a passage and to really get to know what this means, it's not just devotional reading. If you really need to know, what you should do is find as many translations as you possibly can and read that verse in all those translations. And if you find that those translations are all very similar then great, you know that there's nothing confusing about this verse. But if you find that there's something different drastically from translation to translation, then you need to turn to a concordance and look at the Greek and Hebrew. Then you need to look maybe to commentaries of people that are looking at the Greek and Hebrew. Because the Greek and Hebrew is the only way that we can truly rely upon finding the Word of God. So, honestly though, I like what another pastor told me. He said, the best translation is the one you read. 
Did you get it? <laughs> the best translation is the one you read and the one that you understand. The Bible has to be for the common people. We can choose to be like the Catholic Church and say, ah, no, don't change the Bible. Or we can realize that having access, that language changes. I challenge you to look at how English has changed over history. Look at, look at a, a, a poem from, from a few centuries ago and look at how different it was. Look back longer than that and you're going to find that you're not even going to recognize it anymore. I found a schematic that was looking at the 23rd Psalm and it was looking at just one verse in the 23rd Psalm and you go back 500 years, I could not even read it. It didn't, didn't even register what exactly it was saying. The best translation is the one you read. God wants us to come in contact with him through the Bible. Then there was the Arundel Constitution, and it said this, that no one in the future will translate any text of Scripture into English or into any other text than, than book, Scripture, or tract, or that such a book, Scripture, or tract be read, whether new in the time of said John Wycliffe, written or written in the future, whether in part or as a whole, public or hidden. This is under the punishment of the greater excommunication. So you notice here that, that they're writing about a specific person. What, what are they, who are they writing about? The morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe. He's saying, let's get the Bible translated into English. This will help people understand the Bible in their common language, the tongue that they speak every day. And the church says, now, let's keep this uh, in such a way that we're going to excommunicate anyone who thinks that they can do that with the Bible. And later, John Wycliffe had been dead for 40 years. The, there was a council that met 14 years before this, and then finally the Pope confirmed it. And John Wycliffe's bones were exhumed. That means they were dug up. They were taken and they were burned. And his ashes were thrown into the, the, the swift river because he dared to make the Bible accessible to people, to put it in the common language. He was messing with the traditions a little too much. He was making Jesus a little too accessible, and they wouldn't have it. And so they burned his bones. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Are you thankful that people were willing to do whatever it took to get you the Bible? I am. As I read through history, and I encourage you, pick up the book, Great Controversy. It has an incredible swath of history that it goes through and describes this battle for you and I to have access to this book. And I want to have the heart of Martin Luther. Oh God, let me have this book. Let me truly appreciate how it is your love letter to me. J.A. Wiley writes, uh, it's actually, this is uh, quoted in the Great Controversy, but he wrote the history of, of Protestantism in the 16th century. He said, the noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. You get that? When, when the papacy was shining the most brightly, there was the most darkness in the world. Do you remember what we used to call the medieval ages? The dark ages. It's when we had plagues. It's when we had crusades and people dying. And, and it was this time of darkness. And then we call it the enlightenment when people began to get the ability to read again and be able to study again. And, and I, I was reading one thing where it said in the 8th, ninth century, these two monks were writing back and forth. And they were discussing a math problem. And they were acting like it was some incredibly difficult thing that you and I would look at it and say, what? They didn't understand this? The noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. But more than just those physical and, and uh, mental things is what it began to do to truth itself. Um, Daniel 8.25 continues, Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Through his cunning. Do you recognize that word from anywhere else? Something that Satan has done? You go back to the Garden of Eden, you find this. But before we go there, here's a quick list of, of just things that, that were on the top of my head of deceit that we see prospering in this time. Notice that he causes deceit to prosper under his rule. This is what the church did. The church changed the second commandment and said, you can worship images. You can, can bring candles and, and bring the images into the church. 
And actually, you'll look at a catechism, and they, they have Ten Commandments because they split the, the thou shalt not covet into two commandments. They changed the Sabbath to Sunday. We talked about that last week, changing times and law. I think to change times and law. It began to be that you could pray to saints. This is, this is what Christians are coming up to, and it's, it's separating people from God. You've got to, to pray to somebody who's more righteous than you so that they can convince God to be good to you. Immortality of the soul, unending torment of the wicked, this idea that, that God is somehow satisfied to see you writhe in pain in an unending way throughout the ages. Purgatory then was developed, basically, we'll, we'll probably talk more about that, in order to enable people to, to be purified, they get tortured for a little while and then sent to heaven. You'll not find that in your Bible. Confession to priests rather than to Jesus. Transubstantiation, that means when they had the communion service, it actually became the body and blood of Christ, they said. Or they st- some churches still say that. Indulgences, this was paying money in order to get your loved ones out of, out of purgatory. Papal supremacy, the, the Pope was the one installing kings, that's the investiture crisis. And then you had papal infallibility. They, the Pope can do no wrong. The Bishop of Rome who has the keys of the kingdom based upon his succession of gaining authority through the Apostle Peter. This became what Christianity was all about. This was the popular Christianity. This, was, this is Christian history and it gives us pause to realize that the Bible says the most intense things about a religious threat because this is the most powerful thing that Satan can use and that is to twist theological truth to switch to 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 twist spiritual truth and to get people to follow a lie through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Notice it's through his cunning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than all the other uh, creatures at that time. Now notice what his lie was all about. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Is that really what the word of God is all about? Do you really understand the word of God for yourself? Did you know that the new covenant promise, we'll get to that in a second, is that, that God is going to, to teach you what he has to say. Did God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he said, has God indeed said it? That's not just the first time. Think about when Jesus came in contact with Satan himself. Again and again, he's telling him, if you are the Son of God. The last time that we heard God speak in Matthew chapter 3, he's saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Satan wants to plant doubts about God's love for the Son. And so he says, if you're the Son of God. But notice, verse 25 continues, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. There's there's self-exaltation taking place there. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. That language sounds a whole lot like Isaiah chapter 14, which is talking about Lucifer in the context of the king of Babylon. It says, for you have said in your heart, it's a heart matter that's going on here. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will exalt myself. He says that again and again. And then notice he says, I will be like who? The Most High. I will ascend. I will exalt. He's saying this is the way that God operates. He operates based upon selfishness. He operates based upon self-exaltation. He is a selfish being, and there is no such thing as unselfishness. Notice he tries to sell the same lie to Adam and Eve. He says in Genesis 3 verse 4, In the day that you eat of it, the fruit, you take that for yourself, you will be like God. If you take your own, if you decide to live in a selfish way, then you're going to become like God because God himself is selfish. And we bought the lie and we're experiencing what it's like to live in selfishness. And I'm sick of it. I don't know about you. (laughs) I want God's kingdom to be established on earth as it is in heaven. I want to love again like Jesus loves. Education, page 154, says unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom. What is the principle of God's kingdom? Okay, I need everybody to get this. Unselfishness, the principle of 
What is the principle of God's kingdom? Unselfishness is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of actions to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. He wants for you to appear selfish. He wants for our worship service to appear selfish. He wants for our church budget to look selfish. He wants for, he's okay with us to sit in the pews if it's about us and our salvation. Because we're just living selfishly. What he wants is for us to be, what God wants is for us to be filled with his unselfish, self-sacrificing love. Verse 25, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Again, there you see Jesus showing up. He's going to, to seek to take Christ's place. <clears throat> and notice what he tried to do here on earth when he was tempting Jesus. Not only did he tell him, uh, if you're the son of God, planting that doubt about God's word, but he said this, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He wants to take Jesus' place. He wants for his principles to be what we give assent to rather than the principles of the kingdom of heaven. He shall even arise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken. What does that last line say? Without human means. Does that sound familiar to you? Daniel chapter 2, you remember the rock? It's cut out without hands. It's emphasized again and again. Without hands, without hands, without hands. This is something different. It's something that only God can do. It's God's principles. He's going to be broken without human means. There's good news about all the deceit that is prospering on this planet. It will come to an end through God's self-sacrificing love. Truth will prevail in the end. And he wants for you and I to begin to let it prevail in our hearts today. Jesus reveals what that's like in his battle with Satan again and again and again. He refuses to just battle him on logical or philosophical arguments, but instead he says, it's written. It's written. This is what the Bible says. That was his answer to Satan each and every time. And notice back in Daniel chapter 7, we saw that it was until, but, till, what took place? The court was seated, and what does it say? The books are opened. Do you see it? God fights battles with books. God defeats these ferocious beasts that are trampling and devouring on the planet. God solves the problems of history with truth. He will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is truth that will prevail in the end. It is the word of God on which we stand. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now, these are, are not, it's not the Bible explicitly, but you see how God is, is, is fighting the battle. And we could, we could look in, in Daniel, uh, or in, sorry, in Revelation, when, when he comes back riding on a white horse, what's coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's a sword, representing the sword of the Spirit. He comes back with his word. Let's keep going. Notice that this is the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus describes, we learn that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, and we were so excited that it's the Son of Man who's the judge, and he judges in our favor. And then last week we saw that he wants to give you the throne. For those of you that missed last week, the incredible reality is that Jesus wants you to sit on the throne of the universe with him throughout eternity. It's mind-blowing, I know, but check it out. Now let's look at this. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. Whoa. Wait, who's the judge? The father says, I have the authority, but I'm giving it to Jesus, the son of man. And then Jesus says, well, I'm not going to judge you. Well, hang on. Why not, Jesus? Let's let Jesus answer for himself. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You want to represent Christ? Share this message with the world. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to condemn the world. And if our witness is to condemn people, if our witness is to judge people, then we are not representing Christ. We're representing the Antichrist. Have mercy. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. There's a whole the judgment that's needed is that the principles of his kingdom will be seen to be worthy and even those who are lost in the end will recognize it and they'll fall on their faces and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2 tells us. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. He's not even going to have to say anything. 
He's already said enough. He's given us the word of God. He's revealed to us. I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. Do you want to be a part of my kingdom? I've got a seat for you on my father's throne. I overcame and I'm sitting here. I'd like for you to come and be a part of this kingdom throughout eternity. Do you want in? I'm standing at the door knocking. Just open the door. Take time every day to get to know the word, the living word. You know, we can have the word but not truly have Jesus. You go on to say, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. What is God's word all about? You ready for it? Jesus says, this is, he gave me the command of what I should say and what I should speak. What is it? And I know that his command is everlasting life. Hallelujah. His command is everlasting life. God's will is that you would not perish, that no person out there would perish, that every person on the planet would have everlasting life. That is the relentless pursuit of God in every life. Hallelujah. The words that I speak to you, Jesus had said back in John 6 and verse 63, they are spirit and they, to you are spirit and they are life. God's word gives us life. Deuteronomy 32, Moses has said the same thing. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land. Oh, I want a heart like Martin Luther. Give me that book, please. Get it in my heart. Get it in my mind. I've got to know this God because he didn't come to judge me. He came to save me. He's on my side. And his principles are eternal in nature. And they'll overcome every worldly authority, every kingdom, every way that people have exercised authority throughout history. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. It's a, it's, it's an, a book in contrast. There's the way the world operates and the way Jesus operates. And Jesus operates by stepping down in self-sacrificing love to serve. To the lowest extent, washing feet and laying down his life. Education, page 183, says only that which is bound up with his purpose and expresses his character can endure. It's about the character of God. And it's about expressing that character. That is the only principle that will endure. His principles are the only steadfast thing our world knows. You can count on it. Love will prevail in the the end. One day there will be a universe where from the smallest atom to the, to the entire greatest create, things in creation, everything will beat with God's love. But here's the thing about the Word of God. We can read it and actually not come in contact with that love. John 5, verses 39 and 40 says this. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. He says, you search the Scriptures. We're... Those in the medieval and dark ages who were those in authority, they knew the Bible and they were concerned about the translations. They were concerned about people taking it out of Latin. They didn't want people to have access. You search the scriptures for you. In them you think that you have eternal life. We cannot stop at the words themselves, Jesus says. These are they which testify of me. And yet you would not come to me that you might have life. You decided that you know the scriptures so well that you're rejecting how I operate the kingdom that I've come to set up where I said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The meek will inherit the kingdom. Love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who who are, are treating you badly. They didn't want that. They wanted a kingdom that operated like the other kingdoms, but that just had the power of God behind it. And that is what the little horn is all about. But we, I hope, want a different kingdom. We want to come to Jesus. So how do we come to Jesus when we come in the morning and we open our Bibles? Or maybe you're a busy parent and you've got to squeeze it in throughout the day. When you get those moments to listen to the Bible, to spend time in the Bible, to say, okay, God, would you please just give me a desire like Martin Luther, just give me this book. Well, then I read these stories and I'm like, wait a second, hold up. This is going to make me fall in love with God? Are you serious? I don't. I've tried that before, you might be thinking. I want to give you the interpretive key that I believe will help you. And that is this. Education, page 190, says the Bible is its own expositor. That means it explains itself. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. 
The student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. We've got to realize this isn't just a a theological textbook. This isn't just a, a list of rules and regulations. This is a story from Genesis to Revelation. Right? This is the whole story. We've got to see it as a whole story. The student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. And notice this. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme. When I'm reading every text of the Bible, I've got to be looking for the grand central theme. And what is that? Of God's original purpose for the world. He created a good planet for creatures that he loves. Of the rise of the great controversy and of the work of redemption. It's all about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So when I'm reading a text, this is what I'm looking for. He should understand that the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy. What was the, 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 uh, the principle of God that we learned earlier from the same book? Unselfishness. We saw it in heaven. We saw it in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Daniel chapter 8. The two principles that are waging war are selfishness and unselfishness, Righteous, righteousness and sin, love and selfishness, the law of God and lawlessness. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. I don't know what you thought prophecy was about before, but I thought that it was about a whole lot more than this. But there's two things that matter. There's two principles that are waging war on the planet. Selfishness and unselfishness. Self-sacrificing love is what the Bible is about. And if I miss that, I miss Jesus. Jesus whose name actually means Yahweh saves. It is about the relentless pursuit of God after human beings that he's longing to have a relationship with throughout eternity goes on to say this. He should see how the controversy enters into every phase of human experience. Now when I read the headlines, when I see what's going on with my neighbor, with my friends, I realize there's two principles going on here. There's selfishness and there's unselfishness. And then I begin to look at my own heart. How in every act of life, he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. This is called being marked or sealed. Day by day, every choice that I make, I'm choosing to love people with unselfish love, to choose them, to serve them, to make them first in my life, or I'm choosing self-serving, self-preservation, and that can take on a religious garb just like it did in the, the dark ages. And I'll be lost. I'll be marked. Or it can take on self-sacrificing love where I serve and give until the very end, just like Jesus said. He said, take up your cross and follow after me. Two principles, selfishness versus unselfishness. And I'll just tell you from my own experience, you know, early on, I joined a youth evangelism team and I got this big Bible that I began to read. And I had youth pastors there who they said, we can tell that, that something's happening in your life because we can always see it. When somebody is reading the Bible for themselves. And they're just pouring through it and they just keep reading and rereading and reading and reading and they can't set the word of God down. They say, we know they're going to get it. These are guys that have been in youth ministry. They've seen young people get excited for a little while and then it fades away. They get excited at a revival and that's good. Maybe you've had that experience. I've had it before. I've had it many times on and off throughout my life where I get excited and I'm all in this relationship with God and then I lose that experience. I need to come in contact with his love through the Bible every day. It's the non-negotiable in my life. Two principles, selfishness versus unselfishness. I've got to come in contact with the word, recognizing that it reveals Jesus. So you fast forward to that student who was looking at that Bible who said, Oh God, give me the word of God. Martin Luther later went and became a monk. And as a monk in his convent, he would constantly go to the wall in the monastery because there was a Bible chained to the wall. And he would read and pour through that book. And as he read it and read it and read it, he was whipping himself. He was fasting until he would nearly die. He was trying to find God's favor somehow. 
We need people to help instruct us. He had a, a teacher who came along and began to show him through the Bible the grace and the mercy and the love of God. He went off on a pilgrimage to Rome, and in Rome, he's there at what was supposedly Pilate's staircase that had miraculously been transported from Jerusalem into Rome, and he's there on his knees. And as his, he's on his knees, he's going up and he's saying a prayer at each one, and this is supposed to gain you favor with God, when suddenly... The word of God pops into his mind. The just shall live by faith. And he got up off his knees, never to go back. He began to live by faith in God's loving character. And he began to display this to the world. There's the 95 thesis that he nailed to the church in Wittenberg, exposing some of these things that we've discussed about what Christianity had become. He's talking about his own church at this time. He's not pointing to somebody else. He's talking about his own church as a leader in that church. Well, this got him in a lot of trouble, his writings and things. And we fast forward to the Diet of Worms. And the Diet of Worms, he's called to defend his writings, to defend his teachings. And he's, he's there for several days. He's trying to explain it to them when suddenly the spokesman says this, you have not answered the question, but to put to you, you are required to give a clear and precise answer. It's just this bottom line, Martin Luther. Will you or will you not retract? What do you answer? Knowing that you'll probably face death. You'll probably be burned at the stake just like the martyrs that came before you, like Tyndale. This was his response. Since you, your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require from me a clear and simple and precise answer, I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith to either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture. The, the, the key phrase of the Reformation became sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only. I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. He stood against tradition that was holding the gospel back from people. He stood against this massive system that was misrepresenting what God is all about. Because God is crazy about a relationship with people like you and me. It's a really crazy thought. And Martin Luther wanted people to know that. And he was willing to die for that. God, give me this book. It's my desire today to have a greater hunger and thirst to know the love of God as revealed in the pages of this book. If you want to make that stand today, I just want to invite you to take a stand with Martin Luther today. Just say, okay, I'm going to stand and say, I'm standing on the Bible. I'm standing on Scripture. I'm going to say, okay, it's the Word of God. I want to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As you stand, I invite you just to, to sing this song if you know it or, or to listen as it's sung. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart words of life. Words of hope, give us strength, help us cope in this world wherever we roam. Ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart, holy words of our faith handed down to this age, came to us through sacrifice, oh
heed the faithful words of Christ. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words Changing me and changing you We have come with open hearts Oh, let the ancient words impart We have come with open hearts Oh, let the ancient words impart God, we're coming. We want to have open hearts. These words resound with your own heart, your heart of love. They're principles that are eternal in nature, that will one day conquer all evil, self-sacrificing love, a love that would lay down its life for its enemies. Father, would you please... Give us this book. Give us a passion for the Bible. But more than that, would you give us a passion for Jesus through the Bible, for a relationship with this friend that you are who would do anything for us. Thank you, God. This book came through sacrifice. I can read this book in English because people were willing to be burned so that I could have it. And God, I've neglected it. Let it sit aside. I've been too busy for you. Would you change my heart? Would you help me to appreciate the only thing that truly matters? That is the truth of your self-sacrificing love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.